Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers, and it's another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling. It's 100 years of wrestling history as told by the stud. Please welcome the originator of the studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. We step back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hanging out, living the good life in Central Florida. What's up, my man, Ron? Oh, man, it's uh, beautiful down here today. And it's kind of cleared up in the country. You know, people got the snow out of the way now. And uh, it's uh, things are getting better in America. Maybe we got a little uh, uh, break in the weather. And we'll see where it goes from there. We can get COVID under control. We might have something going here again. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we do get that thing out of here soon. So. We're nice, nice here in Southeast Alabama. We're in the seventies this week. So it, that's kind of crazy because we actually burned the fireplace a time or two last week. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I know it was cold up there, and uh, and I feel sorry for everybody else in the country that don't don't live in the sunshine state. Man, but, uh, folks you know, in Texas, that's the, uh, the with well, the power being out as long as it was, and so hopefully they're getting that restored. But that's not going to be the end of the situation because so many pipes have burst yeah you know that that's just going to stall everything and produce a tremendous amount of damage so of course we'll hope hope the best for the folks in texas as well in the aftermath of the the, the huge snow deal you heard about Tiger Woods? Uh, no we're doing this on tuesday afternoon he was in a car wreck this morning in uh southern california he had to be rescued by the jaws of life his suv rolled over and now they're saying he's in surgery uh, after the crash, of course, and they're doing surgery on his legs. So obviously one of the greatest golfers of all time. And we'll, we'll obviously hope the best there and hope that there's no long-term effect. But they said it was just a terrible crash wow. in Southern California with Tiger Woods and by himself, uh, fortunately, in that vehicle. So anyway, wow. that could be a long process of recuperating or recovering, and we'll sure hope for the best. Yeah, yeah, our wishes go out to the Tiger, man. Uh, great yeah. golfer, that's for darn sure, man. All right, we got a stud cast coming up, and they are on fire in the last six months since Studcast started describing Southeastern's fall of 1976. Our audience, I'm hearing this thing has exploded. Fans around the world eagerly await every new episode as Southeastern Knoxville 
was becoming the fastest growing territory in wrestling. Ron, you, Les Thatcher, and some great wrestlers were absolutely changing the sport. The entire NWA and other major wrestling companies were watching you and following your lead this whole time. That's pretty amazing. That's an amazing story, too, because you are in your 20s and not even into your 30s yet. Super Studcast number 38, the most recent Super Studcast, is a fascinating deep dive into how you and others built the best small territory in wrestling history. Les Thatcher is absolutely terrific on this, along with you, in explaining the rise and fall of southeastern Knoxville from 1974 until you absolutely sold out to Jim Barnett in 1979. This is probably the most comprehensive three-hour podcast ever done in the history of a territory. That's, that's huge. And listen, Les Thatcher's never at a loss for words so the two of you rock this thing. That's pretty awesome. Oh, man, he certainly did. You got that right. Les is definitely <laughs> never for, at a loss for words. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I really enjoyed doing uh, doing the first part. And uh, we just finished the second part. It was a pretty unique idea. And the, and it kind of got started, uh, you know, Dave, from uh, the, the tremendous growth, you know, and listeners over the last six months. Uh, it just told me that fans really enjoyed hearing why and how that a territory like Southeastern was growing and what was making it happen from week to week, uh, because that's the way we do these studcasts. Mm -hmm. We tell the story from week to week. And uh, that being the case, I decided, well, heck, let's just go ahead and take a deep dive into Southeastern uh, Knoxville and, uh, you know, uh, go back to the beginning and go from the beginning of that uh, territory to the end and give fans a look beyond 1976 and kind of into the future of what, Became the best small territory in wrestling history. So uh, bringing, bringing Les Thatcher on the ride has been uh, really exciting, you know, and uh, fans have provided a, a totally different perspective of the phenomenal growth having him on there. He saw things from a different side than I did because he handled a different part of it. So, uh, you know, I'm very excited about the fans. And uh, actually, Super Studcast 38, they're making it now uh, another record break. So, uh, Fans, if you haven't heard it and you're interested in hearing, we're working on, we've been working on 75 and 76. Now we're into 77. That Super Stud cast is going to take you to the end. It'll take you all the way to the wrestling war in 1979, Knoxville. So uh, I think uh, fans are really going to enjoy this one. And uh, obviously a lot of people are, are listening to it already. That's pretty awesome. If you are a regular listener of each stud cast, by the way, don't miss this opportunity to take a ride into Southeastern Knoxville's future. You can saddle up today at tnstud.com and click Super Studcast or go to patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99. You get to hear one of wrestling's greatest stories of success and destruction. <laughs> that's a, the I guess that's the only word I could think of to describe that is uh, destruction. and. Uh, you know, fans are going to find out they've never uh, listened to either one of those. Super Stud Cast number 13 is about the wrestling war of Knoxville, and it, it really explains the, how that all went down. And then you number 18 with Ronnie Garvin, and Ronnie was involved in that, and then you get to have his perspective. So 
Yeah. So uh, I think uh, I think people find this to be very educational, historic stuff. Oh, no doubt. All right. So before we put the spurs into these hosses, I got to ask you about an interview that I saw with you over the weekend. It was on YouTube. Now, it's not a softball question, so please don't shoot the messenger. In that interview, you claimed that when you were wearing a mask, all the ladies demanded that you stop wearing the mask because you were so handsome. Is this true, Ron? Oh, man. And let me add to that. Do you consider yourself vastly more handsome than your brother, Rob? (laughs) <laughs> now i don't remember that that interview exactly but uh you know i can't deny i'm a pretty good looking dude you know <laughs> back in the day i was a really good looking dude you know and uh yeah so you know uh, i can see some women go ron why do you wear that mask gosh you know i love looking at you without it on so uh you know, so I was kind of torn sometimes between being the Tennessee stud and just being good looking Ron Fuller. Well, let me me say thank you for an honest, sincere (laughs) and candid response. And it reminded me of some of the soundbites that we use on the opener for this show where you were saying this is a red letter day and reach into that shiver robe and circle, (laughs) grab your pencil and circle this date on the calendar. So anyway, it kind of reminded me of that, but uh, that was a lot of fun. All right, Ron, we are saddled up. Where are we riding to today? What's going on today? Well, we're going we're going to do something different in today's training. Uh, and we're going to do something that very few wrestling companies were doing back in the the seventy seven this in this time frame in particular uh, on their television shows. Uh, this didn't happen very much. And I'm going to describe uh, in today's training one of the southeastern specials. That's what we call these things. And they were shown periodically on the southeastern TV show. Uh, the one talked about today was actually shown on this date 44 years ago. <laughs> so, wow. You know, just uh, it's, it's pretty amazing how we're tracking just 44 years, everything we're doing now. Yep. Uh, we're talking about it 44 years later. So, uh, <laughs> so we, we close out February of 1977 with another huge card. Uh, it's going to feature Bob Armstrong versus the Mongolian Stomper. And it's their first ever southeastern match against each other also uh, on that card is the world's largest athletic twins and i am not so sure about the athletic part of it but they are twins obviously the mcguires you know and uh, these are big boys to say the least you know and it's their first visit ever to southeastern for the first time and uh and the tv uh, for this one is, is all about this february rating period which we talk about, and you make you you kid about kid me about a lot about uh, you know what we do special for those rating periods to get those big numbers. But we're talking about the last week in the February rating period, and uh, everyone going to get the results of that huge card. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that huge card, and I say that especially considering the McGuire twins are on that thing. It is a huge card, you know, and also the attendance uh, just kept uh, continually growing. We'll get the attendance on the end of this one, too. Yeah. Uh, okay. Learning tree. I got to say, athleticism for the McGuire twins would be just getting into the ring, right? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't remember how we got them in the ring, as a matter of fact. I'm sure I'm sure a regular steel chair would not be enough to support those boys to get oh. them off the floor, maybe without yeah. breaking their legs. Oh, no, no, no. You know, no. so uh, 
Uh, that's a good question. How they got in the ring? I don't remember how that happened actually, but uh, okay. you know, maybe uh, maybe athletic is not the word when you're talking about the McGuire twins. I don't even but, think uh, they could. I don't. I'm not sure if they could walk up and roll in. I don't. I don't. I, no, I was, they couldn't get under the rope. The bottom yeah, rope I, would not be nearly high enough off the off the mat for them to roll yeah, under it. I was a young fellow when I saw them, so I ju- I just don't remember. I'll tell you, man. Those those are big boys. Uh, so, and we're going to finish today, Dave, with the learning tree. And uh, for this one, uh, a gentleman asked, uh, "How did talent traveling so much in the territory days find time to perfect moves? Did they do it before the shows, maybe at home in their own rings, or from wrestlers in their actual matches?" So, uh, got a little different one uh, for our learning tree today as well. So. Uh, this should be very interesting for fans. Hope so, and I hope everybody's going to like it. And uh, and I'm um, looking forward to it. Well, we are certainly ready as always. It sounds like another great ride, Stud. My horse cinched up and ready to go. Oh, molasses and I. So where are we riding to first? My gosh, Dave. I mean, every week you got a one a Leonard G. Mani. That I oh. believe this horse is the sounds like the slowest one yet. Oh, molasses. I can he's, see he's him. Just- you're going to burn the ground up today. So, so I'm liable to be finished with this entire stud cast, me and old lightning. And we'll be laying in the Florida sun before you and old molasses get back to the barn, man. And not get enough of insulting my horse every week. Anyway. Well, you know, I mean, uh, you got to get you a, a faster sounding horse at least, man. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll work on that part of it. So, so today's yeah. training, right? Oh, yeah. Let's just jump right into it, man. <laughs> yep. We're going to go right into today's training. It features something we were doing in Southeastern TV shows that very few, if any, promoters back in the late 70s uh, were utilizing to get talent over. And uh, and we called these uh, Southeastern specials and we recorded uh, all, all of them were recorded, not in the studio, uh, didn't have wrestling in a lot of them, so no matches in many of them. They recorded outside the studio. They were about five to seven minutes in length, and they had far more impact than giving a wrestler 10 wins on TV. I mean, you could do one of these specials, and I always uh, equated it to getting 10 wins uh, as far as getting somebody over. So these videos were special because they made the star out of somebody, and at the end of the product, uh, the impact it produced upon the, the fans out there was special too. So. Today's training is a combination, basically, of wearing two hats, uh, both the booker and the promoter's hat, because these two essential parts of the business were combining efforts here to produce a star by highlighting them in a way that set them apart from other wrestlers. Uh, After these were aired, those stars seen in them became even more special. So today we're going to focus on one of those Southeastern specials made in February of 1977. Uh, and it featured the Mongolian stomper and his manager, Don Carson. So this was a great one because it was not only it not only showed the physical power of the stomper, but it also uh, the weaknesses of his manager. <laughs> but to say the least about Don on occasion. So this the special southeastern special uh, be was shot early in the morning of February 24, 1976. It was just after daylight. It was on top of a hill uh, where the WBR TV station was located. That's where it all began. It was a cold day that day and it had snow on the ground. And the Mongolian stomper was warming up for a run. He had, and he was dressed 
in short pants and a tank top. <laughs> because he came out of Canada, I guess, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it wasn't a cold day to him. Right. And, uh, you know, it was cold enough that you could see the breath coming out of his mouth in the wow. video, uh, you know, and just uh, standing there and, and warming up. <laughs> Off to the side was his manager, Don Carson. And, and Don's got on a different outfit. Yeah, he's bet. bundled up. <laughs> Don's bundled up in clothing, man. He's got a fur hat on his head. He's got his arm wrapped around himself as if he's freezing, and uh, you know, like he's been out there for four hours, and he just got there. He's sitting on a bicycle, you know. And so a Stomper's going to run, and, and and Carson's going to bicycle along behind him. So suddenly <laughs> Stomper just takes off, and he starts running down the hill, and. Carson's already on his bike and he starts, as soon as he starts to ride down the hill, the camera's shooting him from behind. You can see that he's not a bike rider. <laughs> he's a little wobbly man. And then they're, they're, they're off and running. So this video that we're shooting, then it can Stomper runs on the sidewalks of uh, some of the main streets of Knoxville from where the TV station is, which was east of town, all the way into downtown and beyond downtown. Uh, and Carson follows him on his bike, and the video records intermittently. It's going to be edited down. You'll see key sites in the city. People in that part of the country recognize, oh, that's a part of Knoxville or whatever. And, uh, you know, it kind of gave the audience an indication of the distance that he was running because Archie is running this course. And yeah. uh, so one part shows uh, Carson huffing and puffing, and he's passing a water bottle off to Stomper. And he complains a little bit to Stomper, uh, you know, about how cold it is. And, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm about done here, you know, and uh, Stomper just uh, drops the water bottle. And he just keeps going. <laughs> so after about six minutes of the video, probably around the two hour point in the run, uh, Stomper's distanced himself from Carson now. <laughs> and, uh, and Carson's way back there. And he's now struggling to ride the bike. Boy, he's easy. He can't hardly pump it up no more. And uh, his legs are tired. And and he starts to scream for Stomper to come back. Hey, come back here and get me. You know, and the Stomper just keeps going. He's just running away from <laughs> So we get down to the end of the video. And it shows Carson uh, toward the end. He's got his coat off now, right now, and he's bending over his bike. He don't ride it anymore. Now he's just kind of standing over it, and it's, it's keeping him from falling down. And he's trying to catch his breath, and the stomper is way far ahead in the distance. And he's still going. He's still running. So Carson screams to come back again, and, you know, you don't see him go back to get him. But in the final shot, stomper says, still Still running in this shot, and he's returning up the hill to the station. He's basically run a two-hour long run through the city of Knoxville, and he comes back up the hill to the station. And when they shoot this shot, he's carrying the bicycle in one arm. He's got Don Carson on his oh back. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so, you know, this Southeast is special. is a great example of what we were doing in professional wrestling. TV that went far beyond what everybody else was doing in 1977. Oh, no this doubt. particular special kind of drove home the fact that the Mongolian stomper was a rare, legitimate athlete. That was for sure. And obviously he deserved a lot of respect. Fans feared him even more. Actually, after watching this video, I'm sure just that display of strength and, uh, and he was one of the most physical specimens, a fantastic build. And really, really never blew up. He could just wrestle for hours, it seemed like. 
It also made Don Carson, on the other hand, <laughs> got all the heat because he was obviously he was lazy throughout the whole thing, and he was obviously very weak. And all that just made Stomper look stronger too. So couldn't even so, make it on a bicycle. Yeah, couldn't do it on a bicycle. What, right, <laughs> what Stomper is doing uh, running. So the video aired on the Southeastern TV show of Saturday, February 26, 1977, almost exactly uh, 44 years to the day from the release of this stud cast. And Dave, I guess you can probably imagine how a studio full of fans and those at home responded when Les Thatcher showed this on the TV show that day. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Who who came up with the idea? Who who said, let's do this thing and videotape it? And that, that took a good bit of doing by the on the TV station's behalf. Yeah, I mean, you know, they were always good about it because our ratings were so good. We got away with doing a lot of stuff like this. And uh, they didn't mind putting together good little segments like this, these little specials. And, uh, you know, Les and I usually talked about what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, the Mongolian Stalkman was a rare athlete. He just was always in such great shape. And uh, anytime we could highlight it, we we probably do two or three more of these uh, over the next couple of years. Did you come up? Did you come up with the idea? Yeah, you know, I I said, you know, Stomper likes to run, and uh, you know, and he did. He liked to yeah. do all that, the stair step machines. He was he was into everything, and uh, you know, I said, uh, let's let's let him do a two hour run. You know, let him go and uh, just uh, spice it together. Once we bring it back and edit it down, and we shot it two days earlier and and recorded it. And played it two days later. Well, so. it's pretty. Uh, if I want to, I want to mention this. It's pretty awesome because it was thirty or forty years later that Vince McMahon was doing vignettes like that, and so Carson would have been. He was doing Bobby Heenan. I mean, the the late Bobby Heenan, thirty five or forty years after. I mean, b before the fact. So it sounds exactly like a Bobby Heenan type type stunt running behind Andre the Giant or something like that. So we, we were we were doing things that were way ahead of their time. Uh, everybody else in the industry just thought you had four matches or four or five yeah. wrestling matches on a show and uh, you didn't give them anything else. Yeah, and, but uh, those little little deals like that really put put over two stars, uh one high, one low. So uh you kind of killed two birds right there. That's awesome. Yep. Yeah. All right. So where are we riding to next? What's up now? Well, we're, we're going to go into that uh, February 27th, 1977 uh, Sunday afternoon card. This one's in Chilhowee Park. It's the first event in Chilhowee Park of 1977. We're at the end of February. So we're pretty much in the Coliseum all the time now. We just have one week where the Coliseum's got an event. We can't get in there, so we're forced to go out to the Chilhowee Park and the old Jacobs building. So I'm going to call this huge card. Uh, not because it's overly loaded with wrestlers, but because two of the contestants weighed over 1,400 pounds combined. Wow. Uh, they weighed half as much as the other 14 wrestlers combined on that card. So before you go on, did I hear this right? Two of the wrestlers weighed half as much as the other 14 combined. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, and, I, and I, it's pretty hard to imagine that. But you, when you see the picture, uh, it's not so hard to imagine it. And the, that happens to be one of the pictures that's going to represent this uh, this particular stud cast. Okay. So, uh, so uh, you know, so you know, and and your hearing is pretty good. You you, you grasp that, you know. I mean, 
it's a lot. I think your hearing's a lot better than than your horse's speed's going to be huh? with old molasses there, Dave. You know what? Huh? <laughs> yeah. See there, you're already backed off. You like your horse. So the McGuire twins, you know, they visited Knoxville for the weekend and actually worked on the Friday night. They worked on the Saturday night. Then uh, then they were in this Knoxville match on the Sunday. So uh, and I, and I'll get to the the, the McGuire match in a second, but I want to start that card on the 27th of February with Rip Smith against George McCrary, which is the first event. And uh, George McCrary had spent a bunch of months in Florida after he had left. He had been there the summer before. He had improved dramatically when he comes back for this run in Southeastern. Dick Steinborn uh, literally faced, for the first time, the original Gladiator because the Gladiator had to go into this match without his mask on. He had lost his mask twice. This time he had to wrestle without a mask, and uh, everybody got to see Jim Dalton's face uh, the entire match for the first time, too, in Southeastern. So Rob and I wrestled a tag match on that day against Norvell Austin and a great little heel, Billy Spears. And uh, Jimmy Golden took on Ronnie Garvin, which was a great match. The 1,400-pound McGuire twins had a Southeastern Tag Championship match with the champions, the Von Steiger brothers. And the main event was that match I spoke about earlier, a special challenge match between Bob Armstrong and the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Don Carson. Uh, Bob's had secured the Cadillac for two weeks in a row. He won it, then he put it up against the 12,000. And uh, now he had, he, the Cadillac was kind of behind it, behind everybody, and he wanted his first shot at the Southeastern Championship. So he didn't get a title match for the first time they had the match but he had wanted to try to earn it so that, uh, you know, he got a win in this one. He might get that title shot the next week. What a great card, especially for Chilhowee Park, no doubt. I really can't wait to hear if the Von Steigers got squashed, and I'm pretty sure they did, by those gigantic twins. I know where we're riding next because it's TV time, everybody. Saturday, February 26th, it's the day before this card was going to happen. Yeah, boy, you're right on it, Dave. I mean, when it comes to TV, man, you, you your horse is going to be way behind you, man, as, as always. Uh, he'll so, catch up eventually. This, this was the last show in the month of February rating period, and I mentioned earlier in 1977. It was a loaded TV, as they had been all month. We opened the month with uh, me defending the TV trophy on the first week of uh, February in 1977. The next week, the Von Steigers defended the Southeastern Tag Titles. The last show that we talked about, uh, the entire show was built around Bob's Cadillac and Ronnie Garvin's $12,000 worth of money that he was going to put up, winner takes all. And on this one, the Mongolian Stomper is going to defend his Southeastern title. Well, obviously, it sounds like a TV show that's as good as a house show. I mean, at least and possibly even equal. So what was the opening still shot on the TV show? Well, this, you know, the idea of the still shot was always to make, a, you know, and, and the idea of TV was to make the TV as good as the house show if, it, if you could, you know, and that's what we really were trying to do every week with every program. So this TV opened with less and that tight shot as usual. And he talked about all the things that fans were going to see on the show that day. And as the cameras backed away, uh, Behind Les and uh, Bob Armstrong, who was sitting next to him, was this giant still shot of a mass of humanity surrounding one person. And, uh, you, you know, when you first look at it, it's just like, 
wow, what a mob of people. It was the Coliseum floor after the match was over between Bob Armstrong and Ronnie Garvin. And if you really look close, you could see Bob's hand sticking out above the crowd and they were full of money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, it was, it was a heck of a shot. So Les, you know, he welcomed Bob and he congratulated him, uh, you know, and Bob still, he had gotten busted the week before and he still had some butterfly stitches over one eye from the week before. And uh, Les announced to the fans that Bob had won Ronnie Garvin's 12 grand. And he got to keep his Cadillac and the studio <laughs> erupted, you know, I was, and it's going to be just the first time they erupt that day. But uh, they got they got a big pop right there. And he asked Bob to explain what the fans were seeing on that set behind them. <laughs> so Bob was in a great mood, this program. And he should have been. Man, he's he's riding high. Yeah. So he brought to everyone's attention that those hands in the air with that cash in it. That's me. He said, right down there, if you look in the middle of that, see, the, there's some guy, there's some hands sticking up with some money. That's me right there. So, you know, that huge crowd around him uh, was fans. And, and he <laughs> couldn't believe, you know, and he said something to Les about, I can't believe the Southeastern fans and just how, how much they, they, they love me. They seem to love me and I love them, you know. So he asked Bill Kincaid, the director, to roll the video. And when the video started moving, uh, started rolling, you know, the, the massive mob that just kept walking with him. So, you know, this big mob that was on the Coliseum floor kind of followed Bob all the way back toward the dressing room. So Les and Bob, they pretty much agreed that uh, Southeastern fans were really crazy now, and and, and they were both uh, pretty amazed at the crowds. They even said, man, the Coliseum is just packed every week. It's just unbelievable what's happening. So Bob thanks all the fans for their support. And he gave him a lot of credit for pushing him to the victory in the last two weeks. The first one winning the Cadillac and the second was was keeping it, you know, and how hard he had fought for it and how he appreciated their support. But Les asked him if he'd like to thank the fans in another way and uh, start the TV show off today with a live match for him. So uh, uh, then then uh, then he asked him and afterward, Bob, would you mind coming back to the set? I got a special video that arrived yesterday from the NWA world champion Harley race. Uh -huh. So Bob answered it with a big yes. I'll be glad to go to the ring. I love to wrestle for these fans. And uh, he went down, went to the ring, and he did the, the same thing that uh, wrestlers are going to do everywhere years later. And this was they didn't always do it back in those days. He went around the entire ring before he got in, shaking hands and high-fiving people. You didn't see that a lot. Uh, Bob was becoming a superstar for Southeastern at this point. Uh, and he took care of business uh, when, he, when the match started, too. And, uh, and he gave those fans a little bit of everything. He gave them a little dancing. He gave them some karate. <laughs> and, he, and he won with another big right hand. He knocked old George McCray unconscious with a big right hand at the end. And then he went back to the set. And as promised, uh, Les had the director run the video from Harley Race. It was the first time Southeastern fans ever got to hear or see an interview from Harley Race. Wow. Uh, you could have heard the pin drop in that studio. They did not want to miss a single word. And Harley, in his interviews, was totally different from Terry Funk, the last world champion that Southeastern fans had heard from. Uh, Harley was all business in his stuff, man. Uh, yeah. And he began yeah. by saying something uh, about it didn't matter who Southeastern Wrestling selected to wrestle him. You know, I don't care. 
And then he began to name the potential challengers in Southeastern at the time. And he put over all of the baby faces. We had some good baby faces in the territory. And he, and he called them out one by one. I was amazed that he knew who all was working in there. And he started with me simply because I was the only one that had ever beat him. I was the only. He said, oh, wow. Ron Fuller first because he's the only, only guy that's ever beat me that's in that territory. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he followed up by mentioning Bob. He mentioned my brother, Rob. He mentioned Jimmy Golden. He mentioned Dick Steinborn. He mentioned Ron Wright. And then he mentioned the guy that wasn't in Southeastern Wrestling, the guy that he had won the title from, Terry Funk. Wow. wow. So he'd obviously done his homework. And he wasn't going to show up on April 26, 1977. Uh, that's when he's going to be wrestling somebody in the Southeast for the championship. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going to show up there unaware of who he might be facing. He ended, boy, as Harley always does. We had that old growl, and he ended up growling in that old raspy, deep voice that, that whoever faced him was going to get hurt yep. because, as he used to say it, because I am the toughest wrestler on God's green earth. No doubt. Wow. And when he finished, there was still silence in that studio. And, and I knew right then, sitting upstairs in the control room, that Harley Race got over in his first uh, Southeastern TV interview. Wow. So let's ask Bob what he thought about the interview. And Bob was humble and, uh, you know, and, uh, and anything but boisterous. You know, he, he said he'd never wrestled Harley, but he'd watched him in the ring before. And, and it was scary, the punishment that Harley Race could take and still get up. And uh, that was true. Harley could go. And he said he would love to get the match, but... You know, Bob put me over and he said, but Ron Fuller got robbed of the world title here months ago with Terry Funk. And I think probably he deserves another chance as much as anybody. So he said he also had heard that Southeastern, because of the recent fantastic growth and the size of the fans and the Coliseum crowds, uh, that uh, there was talk within the NWA that the, the rematch for the title between Terry Funk and Harley might be held in Knoxville. So the fans booed on that one because they hated Funk. (laughs) They hated Terry Funk. The idea of having to watch Terry Funk wrestle Harley Race, you know, that didn't they didn't like that much. So, uh, so Bob took the first interview. He's already there. He'd been to the ring. Now he's been back. He just stayed there with Les for the interview, and he talked about his match, the upcoming match the next afternoon, you know, and how he he needed to win this match with the Stomper in his first time with him to get a title shot and that the Mongolian stomper was undoubtedly the, one of the greatest wrestlers in the world. He put the stomper over and why not, man? I mean, he, he certainly was one of the greatest. And the second match on this TV was Ronnie Garvin. And, uh, he was, a uh, he, he got an angry pulverizing win, you know, with the knee drop off the top rope and his opponent got carried out of the ring again, as usual. And, uh, you know, Garvin went to the set with less. But unlike Bob, who was in a jovial mood, Garvin was just the opposite. He had lost $12,000 six days earlier. So Les tried to show the video, <laughs> which was really not a good idea. He, you know, he's got Garvin there at the desk, and he goes, uh, you know, let, let's watch your, your match with <laughs> And Garvin just said, well, no, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so Garvin refused to let him run the video, you know, and he, he said, you know, 
He said the last something about, you know, I never, I'm never going to lose another match in Southeastern wrestling. And he goes, uh, and I, I'm definitely not going to sit here and watch my last loss. You know, he says, <laughs> he says I'm here for an interview. I want to talk about how bad I'm going to beat Jimmy Golden up tomorrow. Man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Les didn't have any choice about running the video. You know, they pulled the video. <laughs> that was the end of that. And uh, Les cut away to a commercial, and, and two minutes later, he comes back for the interview. And Garvin starts the interview before Les even has a chance to say anything. He tore into the company first, the Southeastern. You know, he was mad because they had allowed him to lose $12,000 of his own money. And they benefited from it, the way he put it. They, they, they got a big crowd out of it, and I lost $10,000, right? So... I could kind of understand him being a little upset by that. You know, that made some sense. So, uh, you know, and then he said uh, that every opponent I have from here on out, they're going to pay me for a piece of that $12,000. That's starting tomorrow with Jimmy Golden. He he said something about he was going to be the devil in Southeastern. And uh, he said, I'm going to leave more bodies laying after every match than I ever have since I've been here. Uh, he, and he was really, he said, basically, he then brought up Carson. Uh, you know, he kept Carson and him had this thing going. And he then he, he said, before he finished, he said, I'm really setting my sights on the southeastern belt. But, you know, he said, even though the Mongolian Stompers wears it, I don't care. He says, because, you know, if I win that belt, he says, southeastern is going to have to give me my money back <laughs> for, the, for my <laughs> loss of that $12,000. He said, because if I win the title, I'm not going to defend it until I get my money back from the company. So, uh, you know, he called it his private war with Southeastern. And uh, he said, we're in this war from here on out, me and Southeastern. Wow. Okay. So that's, you you know, the, the thing I thought about was it's, it's pretty cool to see the good guy win. And Bob Armstrong was probably played a baby face better than anybody and just love the crowd and the vibe from the crowd, which they just exchange back and forth. For sure. <laughs> he, he was he was the epitome of a baby face. Yeah. Fantastic one. Wow, that's awesome. All right. Hey, this is a good point to take a break. We've got a lot more exciting, fun stuff coming up. The story continues in moments. This studcast will be right back. Stay with us. It's one of the best-selling old-school video collections of all time, and it comes from the Lost Territory, Southeastern Continental Wrestling. It features more than 60 stars from two of the greatest territories ever, from Hulk Hogan's first-ever encounter with Andre the Giant in 1978 to Ric Flair world title matches in the 80s. This five-DVD pack is loaded with history. Get it now at TNStud.com. Click Stud Store. Only $39.99, and that includes shipping. 60-plus. Plus matches, over 12 hours of wrestling history with stars from the Armstrongs to Arn and Mr. Olympia, the fantastic stud stable of Fuller's Golden, the Lord Humongous, Assassin, Mr. Wrestling 2, Austin Idol, Tommy Wildfire Rich and Johnny Rich, Kevin Sullivan and his New Guinea Headhunters, Dr. Tom Pritchard, Dutch Mantell, the Dirty White Boy, and far too many others to name. TNStud.com, click Stud Store, get yours for $39. 99 and that includes shipping. If you've never purchased videos before, or if you're a collector, there has never been an offer like this. It's the best deal in wrestling. 
Welcome back. David Summers on another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, the storyteller, laying it out for us once again. And the Stud Store seems to be the place to loiter. Loitering is allowed at the Stud Store. There's everything. I mean, a ton of stuff. You can find T-shirts. You can find photos of the Stud that are autographed. Brutus, his novel, I mean, is it's a big-time novel we're talking and has been described as maybe like Jaws. So how big could that be? You can get Brutus, the novel, autographed, and then you could also get the DVD collection, which is pretty cool with some of the best matches, personalities, the interviews, and go back just years and years in professional wrestling. That's what it's all about. All right, hanging with the stud this afternoon as the story continues. So what now? Well, we're going to do a personality profile. So uh, this one's going to be live. It's going to be in front of the studio audience. And it's going to feature two big dudes. And, uh, they, you know, they're, they're, they're so big. Uh, you know, Dave, uh, we had those big old chairs we did the personality profiles in. Uh, mm-hmm. Gosh, I thought those big chairs weren't going to be near big enough. There was body hanging out over the sides of those big old <laughs> chairs that guys usually lounge in and have plenty of room. Yeah. No, it was it was pretty amazing. And speaking of that description, uh, I used a photo. And this one, I, there's a photo for every one of the stud casts. And uh, if you want to go to tnstud.com, to the website you just mentioned, uh, you see these photos. Uh, and uh, I used in this particular story the McGuire twins sitting one on each side of Les Thatcher during this personality profile. You want to get a picture of something odd-looking. Uh, this is a good one because Les looks, he's buried in there, man. It's like you can hardly pick him out. Uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, you can go to tnstud.com and you click on either the stud cast or the gallery and you, you scroll down and you find stud cast number 188. I, I recommend this one. It's a good one for folks to take a look. I mean, you want to see something strange. Uh, these boys were huge. Hey, so, do you uh, remember, may I ask, do you remember? When how you guys got up with the McGuire twins as far as once they arrived in town, did you have to meet them at the airport or pick them up at the bus station or what was the situation there? Well, what, I don't think they could fly, man. I'll be honest with you. You know, I well, think they, uh, they, they have to in. sit across the aisle. That's that's for sure. Yeah, well, yeah, they had to fill the whole plane. There was probably enough room barely for people to walk down between them. You know, mm, uh, yeah, I don't know how many seats they would fill. Uh, I think they came in by car, to be honest with you. And and I remember they used to ride these little motorcycles. Yes. Well, they yeah. weren't little motorcycles. Just They were so big, the motorcycles looked little. Yep. But uh, they would ride in sometimes to the ring, and I think they did that in Knoxville. They didn't do it in the small tent cities that we wrestled in, but right. they did it in Knoxville, and they rode into the park there in the old Jacobs building, uh, riding those little tiny motorcycles. Uh, yeah. As I recall, they were, I think they were Honda 70s or 80s. I mean, like mini bikes. And yeah. they, I think they must have had an agreement with Honda because in, in Dothan, Alabama, way back then, I can't remember what year, but as a child, they, I think they did an appearance at the Honda dealership, which was literally only about a block at the time away from the Houston County Farm Center on the Ross Clark Circle. So anyway, that was, uh, that was quite a Saturday afternoon. Or you could go by the Honda dealership, you could see the McGuire twins, and then go to the farm center to see them wrestle later in the evening. So, see, I missed the boat then, didn't yeah. I? Yeah. 
I can't believe that. I, yeah. I could have gotten with the Honda people, man, and had them <laughs> right. big boys over there at some Honda dealership, man. Did they send you? Yeah, did they send you video in advance so you had video to show of them a couple of weeks out? Uh, no, I didn't get anything from them. You know, and I'll be honest with you, Dave, I didn't really want to use them because they, to me, did not uh, signify wrestling. They didn't, uh, they weren't athletes. Uh, they they just uh, <laughs> they had a gimmick, and the gimmick to me yeah. wasn't a good one because uh, it didn't make for good wrestling. They they didn't couldn't have a match, right? You know, so uh, and, and we're going to kind of get to that, you know, uh, oddly enough here uh, because of who they're wrestling. Anyway, they're they're in this personality profile and they're sitting on each side of Les, you know, and uh, and Les does a great job with this profile, as, as I remember, man. He asked all kinds of questions that fans would want to know about two guys that big, you know, and they and he kept the focus away from wrestling, which we like to try to do in these personality profiles. And until the very end, and then he finally got around to, you know, asking them how they felt about getting a shot at the Southeastern Tag Team Belts the following day. They didn't get a chance to answer because uh, the next match was a tag team match, and uh, the Von Steigers were in that tag team match. And so when Les asked the question, the Von Steigers were headed to the ring, and they just veered off over there to the studio where <laughs> the big boys were, you know, uh -huh. and they and they. They got through insulting them right there, you know, about you big slobs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they were calling them a bunch of names. And, uh, you know, it was a less, had to get up and get between the four of them. You know, the big boys got out of the chairs and now they're face to face there. And Les got, and hey, wait, guys, this is our personality profile. Uh, the ring's over there. That's where all <laughs> this takes place. And he kind of directed the Germans back to the ring. And, uh, you know, we, we went ahead and had our match. And he closed out the profile, and so the match went on. And the Devon Steigers, man, they didn't take long. They just demolished. They had two young guys that were in there with, and, and they beat them with their so-called uh, German crab hole, you know, rather than the actual name for the famous Boston crab hole. You know, they called it the German crabs. Uh, this is, we beat them with our German crabs, you know, <laughs> so – the next interview was split between the McGuire's, who was stayed in that same studio, basically in Studio B, and uh, Les was with the champions on the main in the main set, the uh, the Von Steigers, and the McGuire's were really soft spoken in their interview. They weren't predicting anything about the match, you know. They were just happy to be in Knoxville, and we're going to do best we can, and you know, one of those deals. And boy, the Von Steigers, when it came their turn, they were anything but nice. Uh, right off the bat, uh, <laughs> Kurt called him. He called the, he called him the, the, look at the two fat American slobs. Oh <laughs> <my> <laughs> <God>. <laughs> he says, they got no business to call themselves the wrestlers. So, you know, he goes, uh, tomorrow he says something about, we're going to drop a German bomb on them and we're going to blow that lard all over the building. Oh, my God. <laughs> Cover every stupid American sitting there. Right? <laughs> wow. We're going to explode these guys tomorrow. And uh, y'all are going to all have to walk out of there with McGuire twins on you. So, <laughs> that was the way I pictured it. I like the interviews. Good, boy. You know, those guys were pretty good. So the last match on the show was the Southeastern Continental Championship match. And it was on TV because we're in that rating period. So Don Carson and the Mongolian Stomper, they came to the set before they went to the ring. 
and Les introduced the special in the earlier in the show. And then, then like I said, it was recorded two days earlier. It had been highly edited on the Friday and uh, it was ready to go on Saturday. So the studio audience, they got into it right away. It's, it's really, as soon as they saw the difference between the clothing, the Stompers wearing the shorts and the tank top and Carson's got all that garb on and the, the big fur hat and the whole deal. And uh, as the video progressed, the studio audience really started getting into it. And every shot of Carson, they laughed. They, the studio was laughing, you know. <laughs> so uh, And Carson's trying to narrate the video. We're less. Hey, yeah, well, we're on such and such street here. And, uh, you know, I got him going and uh, I got him doing this. And and uh, and the fans are just making fun of Carson. So crowd got more and more vocal as it went on. And especially when they saw Carson begging for Stomper uh, to come back and help him. Come back and get me. You know, the, and then, boy, they the crowd exploded on that last shot when Stauffer came up the hill carrying the bicycle and Carson on his back. That was <laughs> too much, man. And it was too much for Carson, too, at that point. They were laughing like crazy, and he went nuts, man. And he, for the first time ever, Don usually had a pretty could keep his calm pretty good, but he, he cursed them. He said something that we had to bleep. It was wow. like I was upstairs. I was like, damn, Don's man. <laughs> so the crowd was getting to him, you know. So Don says something pretty nasty. And later on, uh, thank goodness, we're recording the show an hour before it aired. We had the chance to go back and bleep out what he said. But after the little special ran, he and Stomper went to the ring. And uh, and when Stomper, would, he, he pushed Stomper out in front of him on the way to the ring. He kind of shoved Stomper. He was like, I was like, boy, Don is really mad. So the Stomper, he barely had time to get his championship belt off before the introductions and the bell rang. And uh, Stomper was just, was facing just one opponent this time. He'd been wrestling two guys every time he was on TV. But this time, he only had one opponent. And that was a pretty darn capable wrestler, Dick Steinborn. Wow. So Carson was infuriated by the crowd's response in the video. He was still mad. You could see it. The cameras getting his face. He was all red. The crowd just kept laughing at him. They kept making fun of him when he got to the ring. And then Carson got mad. And, boy, he he called Stomper over. And I mean, he put him in high gear, man. You know, he basically said, shut these people up. And, the car, and Stomper just got pretty violent right off with Steinborn. I mean, Steinborn's a great wrestler, but he was not a big fighter. And Stomper was just, he was both, you know. And uh, and there was really no stopping the Stomper, man, when he when he was ready to beat somebody. So he beat Steinborn basically in a span of just a couple of minutes. And he stomped him in the face like everybody else. You know, he was no better than any of the rest of us. You know, and then the Southeastern belt uh, got strapped around his waist again by by a big smiling Don Carson, man. Oh, my stomper. Oh, he's beautiful. He's wonderful. And they go back to the set. It's interview time. So it's the last interview of the show. And Carson ran, ran with it as always, man. He, he first started out attacking Ronnie Garvin saying uh, he nor his stomper was afraid of Garvin. And Garvin said something in his interview earlier in the show about wanting to get a shot at the Southeastern title. And he said, Garvin, you can have a shot anytime you want. My stomper is the best wrestler in the sport today. And Garvin, you're now a proven loser. You've lost your own money now. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, a lot of us get paid to wrestle, Garvin, but you're stupid Canadian. He goes, you put up your own money and drew a big crowd and the promoters got rich. <laughs> so then he changed gears and he, he went into Bob Armstrong. 
And he said something about Bob Shude's arm, and he got a chance of beating my machine, the Mongolian stomper. And tomorrow afternoon, he said something about the world is going to be watching. Just to find out if Armstrong's even got a small, if he's even a small challenge for my stomper. You know, everybody's going to see, want to see if he can even do anything with my stomper. So, uh, you know, he says there are going to be no titles anymore for guys, title matches anymore for guys like Garvin and Armstrong. Until you guys can prove yourself by beating my stomper, you ain't going to get no championship match. <laughs> and as far as he was concerned, his Mongolian stomper now rules Southeastern wrestling. It sounds like Carson was back on top again, even if the fans were jeering and laughing at him in the video. It's another great TV show, no doubt. All right, I'm sure the ratings are going to be climbing again when the Arbitron and Nielsen books arrive, probably in April. So where are we riding to next, Ron? Well, uh, we're going to talk about the results of that card on February 27, 1977. The opening match with Rip Smith uh, and wrestled against George McCrary, who was an improving wrestler, but he wasn't improving enough to beat Rip Smith at this point. Rip is really a, becoming a great wrestler. Dick Steinborn and Jim Dalton. The former original Gladiator, they both got disqualified in their match, but they were going to come back the next week, and they're going to be in a loser leave Southeastern match. So either Steinborn or the Gladiator or Jim Dalton's going to be gone. Rob and I uh, got a win over Norvell Austin and Billy Spears. Uh, Jimmy Golden got a win over Ronnie Garvin. And uh, Garvin had, had the match won. He had Jimmy down and on the mat. He went up to the top rope. He's going to jump in his throat and do the old deal. And there arrived Don Carson on the floor behind him, tapping on the pole with a, he had a big stick and he was banging on the pole when Garvin turned around and turned his attention to Carson. Uh, Golden was able to get off the mat. Golden slammed Garvin off the top rope and pinned him. And, uh, and Carson disappeared before Garvin even could get up. So, you know, uh, this little deal between Garvin and Carson is becoming something that's going to go somewhere. So the McGuire twins, they got, absolutely pulverized by the Fonz Tigers. Oh. One of the most one-sided matches I ever saw in the history of Southeastern, man. I mean, uh, uh, so bad they, they they blew them up. They blew those big boys up so bad to begin with. And then oh. on the end of it, they just they had no pity on them, and they kept them in there, just kept them going and kept them going. And, wow. and they jumped off the ropes on them. They, they did everything they could do to them. And when it was all over, we had to send guys out to help them back to the dressing room. They couldn't even walk back to the dressing room. And I didn't feel real bad for them. I just felt like those guys uh, were lucky to get booked. And uh, they they weren't quality that uh, you want to put on your card most of the time. So the main event, though, was just absolutely spectacular. Bob Armstrong, he left no doubt that he could contend with the Mongolian stomper. Bob had him really rocking, man. He hit him with a bunch of those big right hands that he'd been knocking people out with. And then Ronnie Garvin returned to favor for Carson. And, and uh, about the point to where Bob's about to get the pin and Stomper's down and uh, Garvin showed up behind Carson. And Carson saw him and Carson ran up into the ring. When he did, the referee rang the bell. He disqualified the Stomper. And then uh, Garvin just never went in the ring after him. He just left ringside. The next week, uh, the belt is going to be on the line in an ODQ match between Bob Armstrong and the Stomper. That's interesting. And and I understand what you're saying about the McGuire twins, because to me, it seems like, and they were probably destined or planning to lose and take their, uh, their, their event money 
and be out of town. But it, but it does seem like that that's more like a circus sideshow type thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and I, like I said, I, I didn't really want to put them on the cart. And it, and if you noticed, uh, we were in Chihuahua Park or they right. wouldn't, I would have never put them in the Coliseum. Yeah. Uh, we were in Chihuahua Park. I didn't want as big a card because we couldn't put all the people we needed to in that building anyway. So uh, it, 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 it worked out good to uh, book them on the Chihuahua Park card. Yeah. Was it was did, did you feel like there was a liability having them? Not a liability because a lot of people, you know, they want to see something different. They never came back. I think I mentioned when I talked about them first in this, mm-hmm. in this program, it was their first and last appearance. You know, they, yeah. okay. they never had the opportunity to come back. Yeah. That's a pretty cool card for Chill Howie Park, though, no doubt about it. What was the attendance? You guys have a pretty big one on that? Oh, man. You know, I mean, obviously, Chill Howie Park is not the Coliseum, and we're really cranking them into the Coliseum and just about selling it out every time. So we actually did about 4,000 people in that little Jacobs building. It was, gosh, I don't know how all of them could see. They were packed on top of each other. It was just mobbed. And uh, no telling how many didn't get in because we sold out. It was a bad situation. I guess that, uh, you know, bad situation to have 4,000 people in a little building like that. But uh, yeah. it looked a lot better than that 1,200 the first night I was in it. And, uh, oh, yeah, no it, doubt. It knocked and, over a 74. Yeah, and I'm curious, uh, as we as a, a side note, did you guys sell beer at Chilhowee Park or the Coliseum? Coliseum, yes. Now, I don't think we sold beer at Chilhowee Park uh, because uh, it was so small and it, it would have been dangerous. Mm. The Coliseum was a bigger open space and easier yeah. to see yeah. what people and control the crowd. That smaller building jammed with 4,000 people. It, it would yeah. have been very dangerous to have them drinking beer, I think. Oh, I can imagine. Did, did you? Was there any profit off the concessions on these big shows? Nope. Nope. We'll talk about that on some one of these days on our learning tree or in our training table. Uh, yeah. Uh, I did not uh, really try to get myself cut into uh, to concessions in big buildings. It didn't make sense for me to take the time to do it. You always had most of the time in the big arenas, they wanted the concessions. There was you never yeah. had that opportunity. Yeah. It, and it likely would have gone to a civic organization or something like that. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. All right. I think it's, uh, why don't we do this? Let's get the cold drink. Let's get under the learning tree. Remind us about the question and who is the one that asked it, Ron? Okay. uh, Learning tree question today came from a guy, a guy on Twitter. I really don't have his name. He called himself on Twitter, double A, but not Arn. That's the way he put it. (laughs) Uh, I'm double A, but not Arn. So double A asked, how did talent traveling so much in territory days find time to perfect moves? before the show, at home in their own rings, or from wrestlers in actual matches? So a great question, and it sounds like uh, old Double uh, A uh, might have been related to Double A and, and, and had a little wrestling training or wanted to be a wrestler to ask a question like that. So Double A, let's start with your first question about how did talent traveling so much in territory days find time to perfect moves? Well, most young wrestlers back in the territory days didn't get to travel. Uh, much less get booked to wrestle uh, until they were adequately trained. And that sometimes took years for some guys to be, as the people that trained them, qualified to be a professional wrestler. So training back in the territory days 
was a whole lot different than it's done today. According to my good friends, uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard, who trains uh, daily in Knoxville, Tennessee for, uh, for Kane, <laughs> you know, uh, the mayor of the city now who wrestled uh, for WWE is Kane and, uh, you know, Les Thatcher. Done, done some, a lot of training of wrestlers himself uh, in today's sport. And we've discussed how the training is so much different. So back in the territory days, there weren't any wrestling schools. You couldn't find a wrestling school in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and to get into wrestling, you really kind of had to know a wrestler who agreed to train you. And, and if he was good, he, he never showed you anything but basic wrestling and shooting holes, if he knew any. Some wrestlers didn't know many shooting holes. He certainly didn't turn you on to what was really behind the scene. So uh, you weren't going to learn anything about the inside of the business until you proved back in the day that you had the heart and determination to be a professional wrestler. So in most cases, that meant if you wanted to be a wrestler back in the 50s, 60s, uh, early 70s, uh, you're going to get a heck of a lot of mat burns. You're going to get hurt a lot. You're going to have some mission holes put on you regularly. All that's got to happen to you before you can even dream of getting in the ring and having a match. So no one was going to allow you to use your moves on them. You were extremely lucky for them to show you their moves. <laughs> that wasn't the way you were going to get, to, you weren't going to get started that way. And you ask a double A uh, if, if you worked out before the show in territory days. Well, wrestlers, I never saw wrestlers ever working out in a building before a show. Back in the, the 60s, when I started, late 60s through the 70s, 80s, it just didn't happen. You know, guys didn't 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 need to. So you never even saw, in most cases, your opponent before a match in a building, unless you were both in the same dressing room, and that wasn't very often that that happened. So you didn't have any opportunity to see anybody, to talk to them, to talk about a match, or or certainly to go out and practice one or something. So you ask. If they learned their moves at home in their own rings, well, double A, uh, not unless they were very rich, you know, wrestling rings weren't cheap. Mm. You know, the basic parts of a wrestling ring is entirely made of steel, and uh, that's pretty expensive things right there. Steel is a pretty expensive product. The investment in rings alone, even if they were really good rings, it kept a lot of promoters from even getting into the wrestling business because they couldn't afford to buy a ring. You know, so very few wrestlers obviously owned their own ring. So, you know, that certainly wasn't the way it happened. So, uh, double A, your last question of whether they learned from wrestling in actual matches, that's the answer to your question right there. <laughs> that's where every wrestler back in the territory days learned the art of the sport. Uh, you spent countless hours learning how to be a wrestler long before you ever got a chance to be one in front of fans. And when you finally reached that plateau, uh, you were probably getting a lot of time uh, to learn the, those moves that you're talking about learning. You, you had a lot of time to do it, but the more you wrestled, the more you learned. So I think it's a big reason that wrestlers today and what's going out there being called wrestling today, one of the reasons that a lot of those young guys don't have the skills of the guys in the territory days. Nowadays, guys are lucky if they get two matches a week in the territory days, I remember working a lot of territories, and I was wrestling 10 times a week, wrestling on TVs and seven nights a week. So that's where you really learn. So that double day, that's where you had the time to perfect your moves in the ring in actual matches. Wow. 
So you're saying you don't have much of a show without a wrestling ring, right? No, gosh, no, man. You can't. You, hey, you got no show without a wrestling ring, you know. And uh, and a lot of guys never deserved to be in a wrestling ring that got yeah. into wrestling ring, and uh, and more so now than ever, you know. After what I see yeah. when I do watch something, uh, there's a lot of them that don't don't deserve to be in a wrestling ring. Oh, the sport has changed so much, Ron, in the last twenty years or more. It must be hard for today's professional wrestlers to have the patience getting so little actual match time to develop their skills. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, of course it is, man. You know, they, they want to be wrestlers and they, that's what they think they're training to be. And, uh, you know, they, they don't get the opportunity to do it. And when you don't get the opportunity to do it for every athlete, Dave, no matter what their sport is, they love to do it and, and they do it as much as possible. And the more time you spend doing your sport, the better you become at it. <laughs> I mean, that's just, it's, it's, it's logical. You know, if you don't get to practice your wrestling, you're not ever going to be a great wrestler. Oh, no doubt. All right, there you go. Another great one, Ron. You've done it again. I enjoy the ride more and more every week. Okay, on Facebook, become friends with a legend. Simply like and follow the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud site or his author site at author Ron Fuller Welch. Twitter and Instagram, it's the same, Ron Fuller Welch. Part two of the new Super Studcast number 38 is now available. Discover how southeastern Knoxville was built into the greatest small territory in the world, then how and why it died. Les Thatcher joins Ron. Find it at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash Studcast. Only $2.99 for three hours of fascinating history. And get the Southeastern Continental five-pack of DVDs, 60 matches, 12 historic hours, now at tnstud.com. Click Stud Store, only $39.99. That includes shipping. Ron's new novel, Brutus, it's on fire around the world. Being compared to Jaws, with more than 40 five-star reviews. Get it at Amazon.com, Brutus Novel, or TNStud.com. Click Stud Store for the rare autograph copy. This book could become a movie, no doubt about it. All right, Ron, so where are we riding to next week? Well, our today's training next week is going to take us on a southeastern tour. We haven't talked about the cities there in a while. We're going to take a little tour in the today's training to all these cities that are on fire in 1977 around Knoxville, within 100, 150 miles of Knoxville. We're just going to call out the names of some of those cities, talk a little bit about uh, some of their arenas and their gymnasiums. So we're going to take out a little ride, and then uh, we're going to continue on into the March of 1977 and the territory of Southeastern that's really lit at this point. We're going to have two no-DQ title matches on the next card that we'll be talking about. We're going to have a loser-leave Southeastern match. And then we're going to talk about another great TV and the attendance figure uh, as we're going back to the Coliseum the next show. The learning tree for the next one comes from a guy named Jeff McGuire. That's a pretty odd coincidence, isn't it? I mean, this guy's name is Jeff McGuire. And we just did a stud cast on the McGuire twins. All right. So next week, we're going to be talking about something from a gentleman named Jeff McGuire. And I recently ran a photo on social media 
of my grandfather, Roy, and his two brothers, Herb and Lester. Now, they were on their way to the ring probably in the 1950s. And uh, Mr. McGuire from Dyersburg, Tennessee, uh, happens to be the city I was born in, mm. sent me this question. And he asked, can you tell the story that I related to you about Herb Welch training his friend and showing him who was the tall hogs at the trough, as Herb called it. You know, uh, and it's the story that, uh, that Mr. McGuire got in touch with me, uh, Jeff McGuire, and I love his story. It is definitely a Herb Welch story. There's no doubt about it. So next week on The Learning Tree, we're going to have ourselves some fun with a Herb Welch story. And yes, uh, you know, I will definitely tell that story for you, Jeff. And I think listeners are really going to love this one, Dave. Oh, it sounds like it. Somebody's got some country stuck up in them if they said, who was the tall hog at the trough? All right. So, all right. I've heard about Herb, your grandfather's brother, and I can't wait for that story. I can't believe it, Rob, but you just keep blazing those guns week after week. No wonder the world awaits the next stud cast. All right. I've been handed this note. I've been, in, I've been instructed to say, and you are still as handsome as the day is long. Oh, boy. My dog, that's a woman, ain't it? You are welcome. <laughs> <laughs> hey, boy. Well, t- I don't have a mask on today. I'll tell you that. I don't know where you got that, that, it, <laughs> that whatever you saw on YouTube, man, with that uh, old it's, interview. But uh, it's there was a time you- when, I was, when I was pretty cocky, Dave. <laughs> I, yeah. I hate to admit it, but uh, I was pretty cocky, and I, I guess I thought <laughs> I was pretty handsome. You know? I apologize to anybody I offended out well. there. It's now a liability if you wear a mask. So just I'm just saying, that's all. <laughs> uh, don't worry. Uh, my mask days are over. All right. <laughs> so, and speaking of blazing guns, by golly, I'll have some more blazing guns for you next week, too. And, uh, and I want to thank all of our Studcast listeners out there and patrons, too, from all around the world for your continued support everywhere. And uh, please tell your friends about the ride and uh, take care of yourselves and others. And may God bless us all. God bless you too, Ryan. This has been a ton of fun today. It's David Summers thanking you as well and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.